This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 15th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, vaccines have proven to be highly effective against COVID-19, and they've probably been our best tool for controlling the epidemic. But with the appearance of the Delta variant, we're seeing an increase in cases of COVID-19 not only among the unvaccinated, but also in people who've already received a full course of vaccines. And as of this time, we really don't have any new tools for preventing COVID-19. So there's been increasing interest in administering additional doses of the existing vaccines to boost immunity. What's the rationale for this and what data currently support the idea? Steve, there are two hypotheses that underlie the idea of reboosting with vaccines, one quantitative and the other qualitative. The first is that a greater immune response is better. We don't know which parts of the immune system are most important for protection, but we expect boosting to affect all arms of immunity. So for example, the idea is that if antibody is good, then more antibody is better. We certainly know that additional boosts can give higher antibody titers. And we've now seen this in several mostly smaller studies using the COVID-19 vaccines. The second idea is a bit more theoretical. Boosting might not only produce higher amounts of antibody, but could also result in a better quality of antibody. It's certainly true that with antigens unrelated to SARS-CoV-2, boosts can give antibodies that have higher affinity or avidity for an antigen. And perhaps these antibodies could do a better job of binding to and neutralizing antigens that aren't exact matches, like the spike proteins of the Delta variant. We have less evidence that this is going on in the studies up to this point for SARS-CoV-2, but it is a very reasonable premise. So, Eric, as you know, many vaccines that we clinically use, we boost over time, such as the hepatitis B virus vaccine, HPV, hepatitis A vaccine. We use the exact same vaccine, exact same antigen given repetitively. This is done, perhaps, it improves the avidity, as you suggest, or may improve the durability. So there are a variety of reasons to boost. The issue of improving antibody maturation or avidity is a complex one, and one that requires a fair amount of study, particularly in humans, because what does it mean to boost and when? Is it something after a few months, six months, six years? How do we understand the impact of boosting over the quality of the immune response elicited. This also raises the question of what to boost with. Is it the homologous delivery system or a heterologous? Is it the exact same pathogen-associated antigen or a heterologous antigen? So there are many questions here, but the concept of boosting has been in the vaccine field since its inception, and it potentially provides a variety of benefits although we need to better define these with actual vaccines in people. I think that the question of getting antibody that bind better to viral variants is a particularly difficult one. And that's in part because as you make what you could say better antibody with boosting, oftentimes it gets even more specific, not less specific. Now, there is some evidence that boosting in SARS-CoV-2 can give you greater breadth of antibodies, but some of the best evidence for that 
is what we've already published, which shows that people with SARS-CoV, the original SARS, had a greater breadth of antibodies after vaccination. But the difference there, of course, is that they were exposed to a heterologous antigen. And in this case, we're talking about boosting and reboosting with the same antigen. So it's unclear how much more benefit you're going to get in the breadth of the antibody response. I think that's strictly an empirical question. I agree it's an empirical question, but I think we have to think about SARS-CoV-2 and how genetically divergent are these variants? I don't think it's the same divergence that we see, for example, with influenza or with HIV, where there is tremendous diversity over time within an individual with HIV or across the population and seasonally with flu. So it's not clear to me which of the evolutionary mutations in SARS-CoV-2, which are relatively small mutations in the genome, actually reflect a substantial divergence immunologically. It's a very fair point, especially since there are two different kinds of antibodies that we're using right now. There are the monoclonal antibodies that are being used therapeutically, and it's easy to imagine, and in fact, we've already seen how changes in the spike protein sequence can really strongly affect monoclonal antibody binding because they only bind to one place. Whereas the polyclonal antibodies that are made in response to vaccination have much more diversity and therefore it's more difficult for the virus to escape with relatively small mutations. And as we'll be discussing today, there is an increased risk of Delta infection in people who've been previously vaccinated. However, there's still quite a bit of protection, and that is a result of the fact that there's a variety of antibodies in people. On previous podcasts, we've talked about the antibody response produced in people who received a third dose of vaccine, the small studies that you mentioned earlier. Much of that has been opportunistic, though, particularly in immunocompromised groups who generally had poor responses to two doses of vaccine. Today, we've published a more systematic study of one of the vaccines, BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine. What did we learn there? This was a small study that was performed using participants from the original clinical trial of the Pfizer vaccine. A total of 34 individuals were given a third dose of vaccine about eight months after their second dose. The big advantage of using a group like this is that there were stored sera from all the previous vaccine administrations. This allowed the investigators to measure neutralizing antibody titers using serum obtained after each dose of the vaccine and prior to the third dose. So what are the lessons? First, the vaccine was well tolerated with adverse events that were very similar to those seen with the first two doses. Remember, this is a very small group and it's tough to draw any real conclusions about safety from this study. Measuring antibody levels showed us a variety of phenomena. The investigators measured neutralizing antibody to the ancestral virus and to two variants, beta, which had been particularly difficult to neutralize, and delta. They drew a few different conclusions. First, neutralizing antibody levels declined a fair amount before the third dose. Second, while the beta strain was more difficult to neutralize in general, delta was similar to the original strain. And finally, a third dose of vaccine increased the response to all viral variants to a level considerably higher than the second dose. In fact, there was not much difference in the neutralization of the original strain and beta in people who'd received a third dose. 
suggesting that the response was different qualitatively as well as quantitatively. This is certainly an interesting set of results, but as we've mentioned almost every week, we don't know if antibody levels are responsible for protection or even if they perfectly correlate with protection. So the results are intriguing, but certainly not definitive. So Eric, as you point out, these data raise more questions than they answer, though they are very intriguing. It's 34 individuals, eight months after primary vaccine series receiving a third dose. So a small set. We don't know what protection looks like immunologically, virologically, or clinically. So it's hard to directly know what to do with these data. There are also many more parameters that we have to consider that these investigators were unable to study for very practical reasons. Dose of the vaccine, interval, the schedule, number of doses, which vaccine, but also factors associated with the host, age, comorbidity, and factors associated with the viral strain that continues to emerge, and also compartment issues in that immunity in the bloodstream may or may not reflect immunity in tissues where one may be exposed to the virus, such as the nasopharynx. So these data, as you point out, are very intriguing and interesting, but boy, there are a lot more questions we need to sort out to understand how to apply these data clinically. So as you say, we need to know more about how effective third doses really are. And today we have our first look at data that begin to address this question in a study from Israel. What did these researchers do and what did they find? So Israel is a kind of natural laboratory The country started vaccinating its population very early on with the Pfizer vaccine and reached very high levels of vaccination rapidly. This produced a precipitous drop in cases, and Israel went from virtual lockdown to a widely open society in a relatively short period of time. Unfortunately, the Delta variant came along and case rates rose once again. So in response, Israel decided to implement a booster dose of the Pfizer vaccine starting at the end of July for everyone over 60 who had received their second dose of vaccine at least five months earlier. In the study we have, the investigators looked at a national database to try to ascertain the risk of infection and disease in those who received three doses of vaccine, as compared to those who'd only received two. Remember, this was performed at a time when virtually all infections were due to the Delta variant, so we're really measuring effectiveness against the Delta only. The investigators decided they would measure effectiveness starting 12 days after the third dose of vaccine. The number of people in the unboosted and boosted groups varied during the study as people could move from one group to the other. However, the numbers were very large, with a total of 5.2 million person days in the non-booster group and 10.6 million in the booster group. Altogether, there were more than 4,400 infections and almost 300 severe cases without boosting and more than 900 infections and almost 30 severe cases in the boosted group. This works out to a substantially lower rate of infection, about an 11-fold reduction, and in severe illness with an almost 20-fold reduction. These figures were similar with various sensitivity analyses. Importantly, the absolute risk of disease, and particularly of severe disease, was relatively low in each group. Nevertheless, there were substantial reductions in risk with a third dose. So this is our first real look at how a third dose of vaccine might perform in the real world. It looks as if there's a decrease in the relative risk, though the absolute risks, remember, are still relatively small. In other words, 
a third dose helps, but not nearly as much as a second dose. So Eric, as you point out, these data are difficult to easily translate to practice. They're not randomized. So different communities may engage vaccines and health behaviors differently. They may have different activities leading to exposure differentially. Also, the period at risk with individuals crossing groups, the time at risk is days, so short interval, given the nature of this unfolding epidemic and the rollout in this response. So many complicating features. However, the fundamental finding of a differential attack rate of COVID infection in those who received a boost looks pretty real and is important to incorporate. But I want to sort of take a moment to put this in perspective and do a thought experiment. For example, let's say that there is a risk of severe illness with a pathogen of 1 to 100 or 1 to 1,000. And one develops a vaccine that drops that three logs. So if your risk of severe illness drops to one in a million, let's say that with time, the benefit decreases. So instead of being a one in a million risk, it drops to one in 100,000. And then an additional measure, such as a third vaccination, has a tenfold benefit, bringing the risk now back to one in a million. So even though there's a tenfold benefit or a 20-fold benefit, one needs to look at that, as you suggest, Eric, in terms of absolute numbers so that one understands how that benefit compares to the wild-type infection versus infection in the context of vaccination that may wane and be boostable, but the overall attack rates are relatively small for the clinical outcomes of concern, such as severe illness and death. So I think that Though the numbers I present are made up, they do hopefully frame how to think about boosting in relation to wild-type infection. And we need to be careful not to just look at relative comparisons, but absolute numbers. There are several good points in there, Lindsay, and I just amplify on a couple of them. First, who was vaccinated in this population-level study? It was people at highest risk because of their age at the highest risk, certainly for severe illness. But one would imagine that it included immunocompromised people. We already know that immunocompromised people have a poor response to two vaccine doses that can be supplemented with three doses. Were the severe cases that we saw happening among that immunocompromised population? If so, then they certainly would benefit and hopefully they're benefiting from the fact that they're getting third doses in this country and many other countries as well. But what that would mean for the rest of the population is not so clear. It, it may be that there isn't that much of an effect for everybody else. And there's no way of telling from these population level data if that is true. The second concern that I have is over something else you alluded to, which is a risk benefit ratio. Right now, we're hearing about benefit only, that some people are getting protected by the third dose of vaccine. We have no idea if there's an additional risk to the third dose. In fact, we only have data like what we saw from the Pfizer study earlier, which suggests that in a very tiny group of people, there's not much risk. Now, it's likely that there's not an enormous risk, but I think it's important that that be measured. So Eric, I think you're absolutely right that we need to better understand the risk and we should not assume that when we do a new intervention like a third dose, 
that it comes without side effects. Presumably, the side effects will be similar to what we've seen with the first two doses, but that needs to be systematically measured and defined. And fortunately, our colleagues in Israel have been incredibly systematic in how they've rolled out the third dose, allowing collection of some of these data. And fortunately, to date, no new safety concerns have been identified with the third dose, but this will require systematic measurement. The benefit will have to be clearly delineated in terms of absolute numbers more than relative benefit. But I think the data are there and will be forthcoming. Of course, remember that the data are there for people over age 60, which is the group that got the vaccine. And there is some evidence that other age groups have a different set of risks. So I think there are more important data to come. It's also important to remember that these are the data upon which people are acting right now. They're making important public health decisions. And I think that everyone should know that the data aren't perfect. We don't have the kind of randomized controlled trials that we did when we were able to make the decision to proceed with vaccination. This is the real world, and this is what we're going to be living in. And we're going to have to be using incomplete data or imperfect data to inform what we do. There's probably no good substitute for that. That's the way it's going to be. And we will have to make decisions. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.